Uh, please turn in your Bibles once more to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we again, we're in the verse number 1. We're going to begin at the beginning. Uh, verse number 1 of this portion of God's Word. Let's hear the Word of God and then we'll pray and ask for God's help. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Let's bow together and let's pray and let's ask for God's help again as we come around the Word. Eternal God and Father, we come humbly again to Thy presence. and We're thankful afresh for the holy, inerrant, inspired Word of the living God. We understand, we recognize that we are reading a letter penned by a man to a man. We're entering into a human relationship. And yet, as Paul would write, he's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. He is an apostle, guided and directed by the Spirit to lead us and guide us into all truth. And so we ask for help and humility and grace to properly hear the Word of God. That it would be a nourishment to your hearts. That perhaps for some in this gathering, it would drum to Christ Jesus. And for others, it would be a means whereby they're strengthened and encouraged, challenged, exhorted, rebuked and reproved. Whatever the need may be, we pray that your word would be beneficial and sufficient. Grant us grace in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As death approaches, people respond differently. Again, that is reality that we should not imagine that approaching death automatically sanctifies. It may do. In fact, it often does. But for some, there are things that happen as death approaches that are not positive. There can be increasing stubbornness Often, people, as they grow older, they become set in their ways. For others, there can be bitter reflection upon life. They look back upon life with a sense of bitterness and resentment, even against the Lord sometimes. Some encounter fresh trials of faith, and they face doubts. They face doubts that they have not encountered before. Now, I say that because we should not have uh, some sort of idea that death is not a challenge. And so when we see people approaching death in faith, we are seeing the triumph of God's grace. When we see someone recorded in the Word of God and they're approaching death with boldness and confidence, we are seeing God's work at life in their lives. You see, we do understand that impending death is certainly sobering. It brings into stark realities the focus of life. We have a sharper focus as we look upon our circumstances and our future. And so in the Bible, the thoughts and the words of some of the best of men are recorded for our edification. We think of the deathbed scene of Genesis 49 as Jacob gathers his sons around and thinks about their futures and also rebukes them for their pasts. It's a sobering scene. Jacob has perception regarding things as death approaches. You think also of David as he speaks to Solomon, I go the way of all the worlds in 1 Kings chapter 2. And the reflections as he charges Solomon to be faithful. He has renewed focus. 
He recognizes death is approaching and he, he charges Solomon to be faithful in the days to come. Well, in some ways, 2 Timothy is like Paul's Davidic speech. As death approaches, he charges his son, not David to Solomon, but Paul to Timothy. And he has clarity as death approaches. 2 Timothy is one of the so-called three pastoral epistles. First and Second Timothy and Titus. These books were known as pastoral epistles from sometime in the 1700s. And it was a suitable title. And they are the only part or the only epistles that are given directly to individuals with pastoral responsibility. Two to Timothy and one to Titus. And undoubtedly, there is application directly given to those in pastoral ministry. You think of verse number six, a reference to the gift and involving the putting on of hands. We'll see that has reference to the work of a presbytery. Elders, again, praying and blessing or asking for God's blessing upon someone who is called to ministry. And so there is application very much to those involved in that sort of task. But... That does not mean that they only apply to pastors. In fact, far from it. These are given by God, yes, to give direction to the church and those in pastoral ministry, but there's application that far goes beyond those bounds. There is general agreement that these letters in 2 Timothy, these letters were written after Paul had been released from house imprisonment, the one recorded in Acts chapter 28. And the general thought is there's, there's nothing in First and Second Timothy and Titus that would tie it back to that time at the end of Acts 28 when Paul is in the Roman imprisonment. But yet we find himself once more as a prisoner. Verse number 8, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of the Lord, nor of me, and he uses this term, his prisoner. And he uses that term elsewhere to note that he's a prisoner for Christ's sake. Not that he's, if you like, in Christ's imprisonment, but he's a prisoner because of his faithfulness to Christ Jesus. And he refers there in verse number 8 to the afflictions of the gospel that he's suffering from. This imprisonment, it is felt, is a more severe imprisonment than what he suffered in Acts chapter 28. You look at verse number 16 here. He refers again to, and there are some clues here regarding the nature of this imprisonment. Verse 16, The Lord gave give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me, and here is a, again another reference, was not ashamed of my chain, but when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. And the implication there was that Paul was not easily found. In Acts 28, there are people, maybe they were able to come and go. Meet with him, commune with him, even the authorities would come, and he would persuade them and convince them regarding Jesus Christ. But here, Onesiphorus had to be diligent as he sought to search out the apostle. And so you turn across to chapter 4 and the verse number 16. You will see that at this point, Paul is suffering greatly, not only from chains, but from the fact, verse 16, at my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. He refers back to Demas in verse number 10. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. And so when you put all this together, you get a sense that Paul is in a different imprisonment than Acts 28, and it's one that is particularly challenging as he suffers at the hands of the Roman authorities. 
That is what gives weight to the language of verse number 6 of chapter 4. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. He's describing his impending death. Death is approaching. And he speaks in a way that is different from Philippians chapter 1. Will I depart? Will I remain? To live as Christ, to die as gain. But I don't know whether I'm to depart, remain. If I remain, it's for your benefit. None of that here. Now we find himself towards the end of his life. And so in many ways, 2 Timothy gives us what we might call Paul's parting words. He's in Rome. Death is approaching, and he's addressing his son in the faith. In light of all this, we would expect to read words that are moving, personal, words that are clear in counsel, and that's exactly what we get. Just as a passing comment, when we go through this book, we will see tenderness. We'll see the tenderness of an older man and his care for a younger son in the faith, but it's a tenderness without compromise. You see, sometimes in the Christian church, as age advances, you make a tenderness with compromise. People become less clear in their convictions, and they become, if you like, somewhat softer in their mind. And so they look at themselves, and there's a tenderness, but it's with compromise. Others, they are those who are set in their ways, become more stubborn. There's no compromise, but there's no tenderness. There's an increase in harshness. And so what we should see here, and hope we will see in the weeks to come, we will see how it is to grow older in the faith with a tender Christ-likeness that holds fast to the truth. We should all pray for that, shouldn't we? That we know how to be tender and yet without any compromise. May God help us to go forward in that regard. But with those comments regarding the letter by of introduction, we should see this morning simply the words of verse number 1. Where Paul, again, as was the fashion, he begins the letter with his own name and the, uh, the, really the qualifications that he has to write this letter. Different from modern letter writing, whatever that is nowadays in the modern age. Uh, but if you still write letters, you will still end your letter with your name. Yours in Christ, or yours truly, yours faithfully, and your name is there. We all know that in the New Testament, the letters are began. They begin with the person writing. Paul an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. Paul, he sees his calling, if I can summarize this, he sees his calling as an apostle to be due to God's sovereign will in connection with the promise of life. That's the idea. He's got this idea in his mind. It's the promise of life. And according to that, God will, God's will is at work whereby he is now an apostle. And so it is a very interesting opening statement. It's not dissimilar to others, but yet it has its own unique flavor. And it is, I believe, worthy of our study today. And so if you think of your outline, you'll see that we begin with a gospel explanation. We're looking here at the subject of the apostle, of the promise of life, and it begins with a gospel explanation. And here I'm referring to the phrase at the end, the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. Dear child of God, it is my hope today that you will take away this phrase and see in this phrase 
a wonderfully condensed summary of what the gospel is. It's one of those terms that are used sometimes, and you, you realize he could simply have said, according to the gospel. But he fleshes out his understanding in such a way that we get real insight into the nature of the gospel. Like, what else is a promise? What else gives life? What else is in Christ Jesus? Nothing else but the gospel. There's nothing else that fulfills the criteria of interpretation of this phrase. It can only be referring to the gospel. And that is a wonderful phrase that summarizes the good news. So we'll do so under these three ideas. First of all, of life. Life. Life is a word that explains the gospel. It implies the problem of sin. Sin that brings death. One man sinned. By that, death passed upon all men. We see here in this word of life, we see the problem of sin in the world. Life also infers the prospect, namely eternal life. It takes us back to Adam and Eve. You see, life in many ways serves as the bookend of the entire Bible. For in Genesis, or Genesis chapter 3, we know that God put the flaming sword bearing cherubim at the east of the garden to keep the way of the tree of life. Sin barred the way from the tree of life. That's the bookend in Genesis. The bookend in Revelation then is the far side. We see in Genesis, Revelation chapter 22, a pure river of water of life. And we see from that river there was a tree of life which bear twelve manner of fruits and yielded a fruit every month. The leaves of the trees for the healing of the nation's life. Out of the garden, no life. Death upon all men. But now, through the gospel, life opened, whereby all those in Christ can come and take of the tree of life that heals the nations. You see the theme? It's not my purpose to expound those texts today, but you see the theme that runs through the Bible. Sin brings death and Christ brings life. You see, sin brings spiritual death upon all men. The Lord God warned our first parents the day this, thereof thou shalt surely die. And so turn, please, to Ephesians chapter 2. Go back in your Bible and you will see the nature of this death. People often say, well, God said the day that is thereof, thou shalt surely die. But they didn't die. Was God not true in his word? Of course he was. So you've got to understand that death is not simply physical death, but has other dimensions in the word of God. There is a spiritual death that is taught. And the day that Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they died spiritually. And that death had passed upon all of their children. Verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2 and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespass and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. You who were dead in trespass and sins. This spiritual death speaks of separation from God. No heart beating for God. No feet to walk with God. No hands to serve the Lord. No voice to praise the Lord. All of those thing, things that we see as features of life, they're all gone. The sinner is dead in sin. And so whilst they live physically, they're dead inside. And life comes through Christ. You see, verse number one is 
in Ephesians chapter 2 has supplied for us the words, hath he quickened, but they're not there in the original. It simply says, you who were dead in sins. Then verse number 5 picks it up again. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Sin brings death and Christ brings life. That's why life is one of these wonderful terms that simply summarize the gospel. We're alive in Christ Jesus. Now, undoubtedly, sin brings this spiritual death, but it does also bring physical death. You think if you go back to 2 Timothy, and you will see that as Paul will come back to these themes in, verse, in the following verses, and you'll get to verse number 9 and 10 of the chapter 1, and you will see that the gospel is made manifest as Christ appears. But what does Christ do? Who hath abolished death and hath brought life. But he adds this other word, and immortality. See, spiritual life begins through Christ. But alongside spiritual life, there comes immortality, for Christ has destroyed him that of the power of death. Hebrews chapter 2. We understand that we are we're not in bondage to physical death. We will die, but death will not have the victory over us. It's the idea we've seen in recent times. It is the fact that the gospel teaches resurrection. And so life can be summarized. Oh yes, you're a dead sinner, but you can live spiritually. But you're also dying as a sinner, but you can be raised again and live with the Lord forevermore in immortality. That's part of the gospel promise. So what a good term this life is. We also see that sin, as it brings spiritual death and physical death, will also one day bring eternal death. It's called the second death. And yet the language of Revelation chapter 2 is that those who overcome, that is those who have faith in Christ Jesus, that does not die, does not fail, those who overcome shall not be hurt of the second death. You see that? Christ brings victory over the second death, which refers to hell and destruction outside the presence of God forevermore. So life is a wonderful term. You know, for us who know the Lord, we need to refresh our minds time and time again that the gospel is news of life. We have words that are incredibly relevant to a fallen world. Certainly, People we mingle with, they are all dying. The people you met at the grocery store last week, they are one week closer to death this week. That is a reality of life. Physical life, that physical life approaches physical death. And people may, for a season, they may try to pretend that that is not a reality. They may seek to avoid it. But there are times in their lives when they are confronted with it and the joy that we have is to come to them and say, in such times we have good news that talks about life. But not only in that sense. We have a word that is relevant to many in our day who live in abject despair, an abject doom. You know, you do any research on the topics of depression and anxiety and some of those things. And one of the consistent things that is said by those in the depths of despair is, I feel dead inside. There is this recognition within the sinner that there's a brokenness in their heart, a brokenness in their soul. 
You see, life eternal, John 17, is to know God. And Christ Jesus now is sent. And the sinner without such life live in death, and they feel that within themselves. And at times it comes, it comes to a head. And may God give us the grace to step in at such a time. Life is found in Christ alone. The remedy to all of your troubles in life is ultimately Christ Jesus. Now that comes across so often as a, as a trite phrase. Christ is the answer. And people dismiss it because they don't understand the breadth of what that means. But it's absolutely true. It needs explained. It needs clarified. It does not mean that you'll suddenly have, have money and prosperity and health and success. It doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean that Christ is the answer to every single consequence of the fall. Everything that sin brings, Christ deals with. He leaves nothing undealt with. Spiritual, physical, and eternal death. The gospel is the good news of life. But there's more in this simple gospel explanation. And it is the word promise. Promise. It's a commitment to do something. In the simplest terms, that's what it is. It is committing to do something in the future. And again, we can find ourselves and we can speak to the lost and we can say, we can tell them about a God who has promised and made promises in his word, promises that relate to life. Let me just highlight a few things. This promise is from God. Turn across a couple of pages to Titus chapter 1. And in these three pastoral epistles, there is certainly, there are overlaps in the greetings that are given. Titus chapter 1 begins, Paul, the servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then he says, verse number 2, In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. See the overlap there, this, this hope, this expectation of eternal life. But who is the one that makes the promise? It is God himself. Oh yes, it's revealed by the prophets and the apostles. It's revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. It's preached in the New. But yet, through it all is the recognition that it is God who announced this promise. And the promise that begins before the fall, begins before the world began. Promise before the world began. Paul uses similar terms. In verse number 9 of 2 Timothy chapter 1, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. You see, God has in all eternity committed himself to redeem a people unto himself. And he has committed himself to do all that is required to secure eternal life for those who are his children. The promise is from God. The promise also clearly as a promise has a future dimension to it. You don't promise what's past. There's a promise, an aspect of promise, that is future-looking. Now, from God's perspective, eternity looks future towards human history. And so you see that works out in the Bible. We see this future prospect of promise. It begins in Genesis chapter 3. The seed of the woman going to crush and destroy the serpent's head. There's going to be victory over the devil from the seed promise of the woman, Genesis 3.15. That promise continues. A prophet like Moses, a king like David, a priest like Melchizedek. These figures in human history that are pointing forward to the promise. A branch of Jesse will come. Those things that we've seen, the promises develop. 
a suffering servant redeemer, one who will bear our iniquities and take them away. We see all of that in the Old Testament. It is a promise of life. And so in human history, that promise speaks of Christ Jesus. Christ is indeed the promise. For he is the promised one. He's the one that secures life. And that's why all these things are said to be in Christ Jesus. But there's also a future dimension to the individual. The promise of life does not only pertain to what God promised before time began, but it pertains to what God promises today for those who are outside of Christ Jesus. Please turn back to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. See, as we think of this summary, we realize that as we speak of the promise of life, we must, we must always start with Christ Jesus. He is the promise. He comes, and life comes through Christ. But there is also this aspect in the Word of God. The promise comes to the individual. John chapter 3, verse 14, For as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, referring again to the cross, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. The promise that those who believe in Him will have eternal life. Life that begins now, and life that will never end. Life that is the renewal of spiritual life, continuing then in resurrected life, and ultimately, without the second death touching or eternal life, all those various aspects, they're promised to all who believe. It's a promise of life. You see, let's just very, take a very, very quick run through John's gospel. John 4, verse 14. The Lord to the woman, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. John chapter 6. And the verse number 27, again, the people here, they're, they're worried about bread. They're worried all about life. How can we get bread and live? Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. And Christ is the bread of life. John 6, verse 51. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eateth this bread, he shall live forever. You see that? Christ comes and gives the promise of life to individuals. Some of whom are still dead in sin. And so those, and they question the aspect of the Bible giving promises to the lost. The promises are conditional. They're conditions on belief, faith and repentance. But they are genuinely offered to those who are at one point dead in sin. The Lord in John chapter 6 is speaking to some, and at the end of the chapter, they leave him. They are not alive in Christ Jesus. The Lord is not simply describing what it is to be a Christian and his life. He is saying to them, if you believe there is everlasting life, you're now dead in sin, but trust in Christ, and there's life and life forevermore. It is the promise of life. Undoubtedly, I know, and we know, that it only comes by the work of the Spirit of God. But we should not be ashamed of offering life. Christ, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. But there are sheep in John chapter 10 that are not of the fold. They're going to be brought in also. 
But to them, there is life. One last reference, John 17 and the verse number 2. John 17, the verse number 2, referring to the Son, glorify thy Son. Verse 1, as thou hast given him part over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. You see, the very purpose of salvation, the very purpose of sending Christ, is that he would give eternal life to the individual. And so I must say, when I first was studying 2 Timothy chapter 1, and Notice this phrase, the promise of life in Christ. My, my focus is very much upon the historical coming of Christ. But then you think about it in a fuller sense. And I'm so glad today I can offer you life if you trust in Christ Jesus. You do not need to persist in spiritual deadness. There's life found in Christ and Christ alone. So, this promise comes from God. It has a future dimension. And it has a formal commitment involved. You see, this word promise is often used in connection with covenant. Hebrews chapter 6, the promise is used in regard to Abraham having a promise from God to know God's blessing. But turn back once more to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to keep moving here, so I'm not going to slow, or I'm not going to pause in this very long. But I'm showing you here, this word promise is often used in connection with God's covenantal faithfulness. Verse number 12, Ephesians chapter 2. That at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise. The promise of God from before the world began gives birth to these covenants. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Israel, David, Christ himself. These promises, that are these covenants that flow out of the promise. So again, I'm just trying to encourage you when you look at this term, the promise of life, you're seeing something that comes from God in the form of covenant that cannot fail to come to pass. Third thing regarding this gospel explanation. We've seen it is of life, it is something that's promised, and it is in Christ Jesus alone. That's Paul's phrase, isn't it? It's really it's not unique to Paul, but it's very much at the very heart of Paul's theology. The promise of life which is in Christ Jesus. In union with Christ. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is with God. The Word was God. John chapter 1. In Him was life. And the life was a light of man. As this idea that Christ came into the world as life to give life. And the only place to find life is in Christ Jesus. In Him was life. Where do you find life? In Christ. Is there life outside of Christ? No. True life is only found in Christ Jesus. And therefore, if you're outside Christ today, there is no life. But if you're in Christ today, no matter how badly you feel, no matter how down in the dumps you are, there is life in Christ Jesus and though you may struggle, you're alive. You're not dead anymore. You're alive because you're in Christ. And you cannot be in union with Christ without having life. It's a great blessing of the gospel. It is the promise of life. And so Paul will say, we'll see it later on in this, in this, very, this very chapter, that grace was given us in Christ Jesus, verse number 9. Christ is the promise. And all the promises come in union with Him. 
if you like, in virtue of his work, in virtue of what he has done for us in the cross, in his life and death and resurrection, he secures eternal life for all those given to him by the Father. So that's the gospel explanation. Now, very quickly, the second thing is divine action. And if you're following along, the next two points are briefer. Divine action involved here. Look at verse number one again. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Paul understands his role as an apostle is because of God's will, because of God's purpose. Over in the first letter of Timothy, and you'll see again an overlap here, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God. And that's the overlap. So you see, Paul understands that he's not an apostle by self-appointment. He's an apostle by divine appointment. That's very important as he asserts his apostolic authority. But what I want to appreciate, and we'll, we'll come to see very briefly how his apostleship links with the promise. But for now, simply notice that he is an apostle by the will of God. But how did he come, become an apostle in time? We know he breathes out threatenings. He's evil against the church of God. And he goes to Damascus and light comes from heaven and a voice from heaven. Ananias goes to him. Ananias reluctantly to begin with, but he goes there and he says, you're sent. You're sent to bring the word of God to the Gentiles, to bring them from darkness to light. That's your job, Paul. So the will of God then intervenes in human history. To bring Paul out of darkness into light, from being a persecutor to be an apostle. So I want you to appreciate this is just a very simple observation, but we should not miss it. And that is that it is the will of God that works out in human history. Human events and human details, historical narratives, all of these things are happening according to the will of God. Again, back once more to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. And the verse number 11. And so in many ways, this is just a point of doctrine. We have an inheritance with Christ. We are predestined according to the purpose of Him. He worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. I suppose there are several things that I want you to, uh, to appreciate I want you to recognize that human history is in the will of God. That's important. But we're not living a life of chaos. This world is not in chaos. It's in control. It's in God's control. I want you to appreciate again that all things in human history, they work out after God's eternal purpose and will. It's a very common and very important doctrine. But even very particularly, we see that in Paul's circumstances, the will of God for Paul required God to come into human history, to step into human history, and to turn things around. I suppose, in part, the encouragement is this. We don't know what God will do next to turn things around. Who would have thought, as Paul's on his way to Damascus, his way to do all of these things, that God's eternal will was about to step into time and human history and change everything. And the world was never the same again after Christ appeared to the Apostle Paul. 
That's the doctrine of God's intervention in human history according to His will. These aren't abstract concepts. They're, they're, not, they're not a way out there concepts. There's the recognition that God is able to purpose things according to His counsel. Nothing can thwart God. And He does it according to His pleasure and according to His time. You see, why it's, of course, it's true for Paul's conversion, in some sense, in a very real sense, it's true for all of us. Ephesians chapter 1 and the verse number 5 reminds us that we are predestined unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. God's will determines the events in time. I suppose if you think of 2 Timothy chapter 1, what we're seeing here is that the will of God is guaranteeing that the purpose and the promise of life will not fail to come to pass. I just like the fact these things come together. The promise of life is secured by the will of God. We cannot lie. If it's left to ourselves, if it's left to, uh, to our working things out, no security, no confidence, no peace. But it's the will of God that secures the promise of God. Divine action. Thirdly, finally, apostolic function. See, what is clear here is that Paul, Paul understands that his work as an apostle is, yes, it's by the will of God, but it's according to the promise of life. That which is in Christ Jesus, he's an apostle in some way relating to God's promise of life. And you've got to figure out, how does that relate? Well, we understand there are no apostles today. In some circles, that's a stark statement, but it's true. To be an apostle in Bible times, you had to be an eyewitness of Christ's resurrection. Acts 1, 1 Corinthians 15, in which Paul says that Christ appeared to him last of all. He was the last one to be an eyewitness of Christ's resurrection because Christ truly appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. An eyewitness of Christ's resurrection. Appointed personally by Christ, that's clear. Divine appointment. And also bearing the signs of an apostle. Those miracles that confirmed the fact that they were apostles sent of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. And so, if there are no apostles today, what is their function? Well, two things. They had a preaching task. They certainly had a preaching task. Verse number 11 of chapter 1. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle. They had this responsibility to bring the word of God. Titus chapter 1 and the verse number 3. But hath, and this is, the, this is the promise, the hope of eternal life, promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me. See that? So they had a preaching function. They were to be the announcers of the gospel. You read the book of Acts. Peter and Paul. They were the preachers of the promise of life. Paul, particularly the Gentiles, not exclusively, and Peter, particularly the Jews, but not exclusively. They were the ones who preached the promise of life. But the apostles also had a preserving task. A preaching task and a preserving task. Their duty was to preserve and record the gospel in the Scriptures. Back in John chapter 16, they had the promise of the Spirit of God being sent upon them John 16 and the verse number 13. 
How bait when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. There's the promise. The promise of the inspiration of the New Testament Scriptures through the apostles. They were going to be guided by the Spirit of God to put into paper the truth of the gospel that it would be recorded for all times. So if you go, please, to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, just one illustration of this. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, a little verse that is very important and often overlooked. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught. Okay, this idea of traditions is referring to the apostolic teachings. They had the Spirit of God, and through the Spirit they were teaching the, the doctrines of Christ to the church. And the brethren were to, they were to hold fast those traditions. But note how they came. Whether by word, preaching, or, or epistle, by letters. The letters of the apostles carried the same authority as the presence of the apostles in their preaching. And so you get from that the inference that to be an apostle by the will of God to the promise of life indicates again that the apostles had the duty and the responsibility to not only preach that promise, but to record that promise. Why? So that you could read it today. You can't hear an apostle preach today. No way at all of hearing the apostle preach. And so without the apostles being responsible to preserve the word of God, you could live and die without having ever heard the promise of life. And so he's an apostle by the will of God according to the promise of life, implying very clearly that part of God's purpose in the promise was to reveal and preserve his word to many generations. God's, God's gift of life includes the giving of the Scriptures. So therefore, this book is not given to you simply that you can memorize the verses, understand the grammar, have a grasp of language and all of those things. This book is given to you that you might know life. And if you have this book in your hand right now, and yet you're not in Christ and you're dead in sin, you're wasting the benefit of this book. This book is given to you as a gift from God. What a gift it is. The communication of the promise of life. All of those doctrines we've looked at and sought to them up today, they're all communicated to us in this word. You see, it is very clear. The gospel is God graciously promising life. And the Bible is proof. This book has been preserved pure in all ages. That's our confession of faith. It's been kept pure. It's been kept accurate. It has not fallen foul of every attack of the devil. And there have been many, many attacks. And yet God has kept his word. The very fact I have a Bible in my hand right now is a proof that God desires sinners to repent and believe the gospel. This book is proof that if you turn from your sin, God will forgive you. This book proves that. It's not the only proof. There are so many. But Paul's an apostle according to the promise of life. In other words, his apostleship 
was necessary in the will of God that this promise be communicated through all ages. And so I come to you today as a preacher of the gospel. This biblical gospel is the only message of life that comes with the seal of God. Others will promise you, they'll give you great promises. This promise is the only one that comes with the seal of God. Life in Christ. Life through faith in Christ. You stay in your sin, you remain dead, and you're subject to the second death that is hell. If you come to know Christ, there's life today. You can live today for the very first time. You can take your first breath today. And you will never, ever stop breathing the breath of God. May God open our hearts to understand these things. Paul, an apostle, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, life which is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Eternal God, we thank you again for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the word of God that again, points us and directs us in various ways. And we pray you give us the insight to consider the Scriptures carefully. And we pray, O God, that all of us would appreciate what we have in Christ. And those who are still in the deadness of their sins, may they realize that there is life in Christ. And they can know that today. O Lord God, we look to Thee. Take this book. Take the Word. And open some heart today. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.